When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Marcus and Ray with the fourth episode of our podcast, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We are going down a completely different avenue today. We're going to talk about record buying. And you had to go down some different avenues and streets back in the day to find the records that you wanted. We're going to talk a lot about that stuff. Uh, It is The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And all I could say is uh, I think that we're starting to earn that name a little bit. Um, the last couple episodes, I think we've kind of laid the groundwork for what we're talking about and what we're doing. And we've been talking about doing this or talking about this for a while. Uh, before we get into talking about records, let's thank the guys who do some cool stuff for us, like Rick DeFonso. Um, you might know Rick from the A's. He worked with Cindy Lauper and Roger Waters and a whole lot more. He's a Philly legend, and he's put together a new album. It's called Instrumental emphasis on the mental and that's why it fits here on our podcast you know what i mean yeah and you can you can find it online uh we'll get the information it's uh, rickdefonso.com uh but you know check it out and that's our opening theme song and you'll hear his music throughout the podcast and we thank him for his support really for just a couple knuckleheads want to sit and talk about rock and roll but you know we're human beings you're human beings we can uh, interchange and exchange information and that's what we're talking about here aren't we pretty much very much so we'd also like to uh, thank mr tom collins photographer whose shots you will see quite regularly on both our facebook page as well as our website you can find him on facebook rock and shots live and he's done some incredible work over the years we've both had the pleasure of working with him at many shows through live nation through the radio stations that we have worked at and he's always done a great job with photos not only from in front of the stage but backstage taking shots with uh, the bands a lot of those shots that we have of us on stage at events at radio events or otherwise are taken by tom collins and the time he captured me on stage with you too when bono had a laryngitis beautiful that's a great shot Tom. (laughs) 
So, again, thank you to everybody helping out and taking a chance and listening to the podcast. It means a lot, especially to you rock and roll fans. We love rock and roll as much as you guys do. You know, they might want to know how they can get in touch with us to plug in and tell us what's going on with them. Well, we've got an email address, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. We've also got a Facebook page, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We want your feedback. We want your ideas. We want your insights into this crazy imbalanced history. There are stories that go with these, uh, you know, the knowledge that we're going to share and that we're going to learn as well. So buckle in. You know what it, it, it comes down to? Uh, when it comes to records and experiencing music, but for us in our generation, um, when it comes down to records, it's about the experience that you had. That's what this episode's really all about. The experiences that we had when we first started buying records, uh, maybe some unique, interesting things along the way. But for me, I think I wanted, we wanted to talk about our first record buying experience and yours wasn't in the Philadelphia area. So if people who was it in Denver and Denver. So they're going to know the stories you're talking about. And uh, people in the Philly area will nod when I talk about Jerry's records at the Neshaminy Mall. But uh, tell, us, tell us about when you first started buying records, uh, when and where, and all that good stuff. I was about 10 years old when I got my first record in Denver, listening to a lot of music. At that time, I was listening to a lot of my parents, like Neil Diamond, Three Dog Night Records. They had Stevie Wonder talking books. Songs in the Key of Life had just come out and was blowing people's minds. I still remember sitting on that ugly shag carpet in the dark with headphones on listening to it. Staying up late listening to rock radio, reading my books instead of going to sleep, going someday that's what I want to do, and hearing songs like Rich Girl by Holland Oates. And I ended up buying Rich Girl because they said bitch in it, and I thought that that was just crazy at that age, that you could get away with it. And I ended up falling in love with the album, and from there, God, I bought, oh my God, a few 45s like You Sexy Thing by Hot Chocolate, a bunch of the stuff that was big in the disco era because that like chic Le Freak um, is one of my favorites and I still have that. Um, and we'll put pictures of all this stuff on, on, our, on our Facebook page and our website. I've got Hold the Line Toto and I've still got either the crack or the warp in it that I bought that I never took out because I, it always played, and I was like, I'm not going to be able to buy a new one, but I still wanted to hear the song. What was your first buying experience? I got I got drilled into Top 40 Radio in the 60s, before I discovered, before, really before FM was anything, in, and certainly in Philadelphia. And uh, there was all these records. So eventually I, I saved the, uh, I got a, ended up with a dollar in my pocket. <clears throat> and my mom used to shop at the Davisville Shopping Bag over on Street Road in War where Warminster in Southampton. We would go over there to shop. And then there was the hardware store. I think it's a Rillings Bakery now, the space. Um, they had this big hardware store. And in there, they had bins of 45s. And with my $1.06 or whatever it was I had in my hands, I went in one day and I found it. Well, she, was, she said I could look for a little bit, so I'm in there. And I found it. This record I've been hearing on uh, on AM radio on WFIL, it was the Electric Indian Kimosabi. Instrumental top 40, unbelievable, but that was the first record I ever bought. Now, what year did that come out? I bought it in 68, so I was also 10 years old. 
And so there were trips, you know, mom wouldn't let me off, her, off, you know, out of her sight, but I would always convince her that we needed light bulbs or something to go in the hardware store. And whenever we went in there, I was always buying a record. And the next record I bought was uh, original Motown, Jackson 5, I Want You Back. And that one just, I think she got tired of hearing that in about a week. So she went back to the hardware store on purpose, like, uh, here, go buy another record, you know. And uh, after, I started buying picture sleeves, 45s. Uh, my first one was down on the corner uh, from uh, CCR. And then I bought all the CCR singles. And I was just buying singles like crazy. And um, eventually I got to the point, I think it was when the singles were all coming out for Abbey Road. I had two, you know, two, the two big singles. So I had four great songs from that album. And that's when I decided I was going to take the plunge. I'm going to just go plunk down that four ninety nine. It was an outrageous sum at the time, probably. It might even have been less, but it was like five bucks. And sure enough, saved up my five bucks. I knew that my grandmother was probably going to give me an album. She had been buying me 45s for years. She would go down to Market Street. We'll go into the record shops. Oh, my grandson loves the rock and roll. And they would send all kinds of records home. I acquired a lot of interesting records. Uh, uh, some of my Glenn Campbell records came from my grandmother. Uh, a few oddities and uh, things like that came from her. But she would always come up on Sunday. But for my birthday, I heard that she was buying me something really cool. So I took a chance. And I went into Jerry's Records in the New Chamonix Mall. And uh, I put down my 499 for Abbey Road and then began playing the hell out of that uh, for the next couple of days quietly and I didn't want my grandmother to know that I'd already bought it because she was going to give me my first album, right? I could just see the clerks in the store on Market Street trying to explain to Nana that her, their 12-year-old grandson was going to love this album, this Iron Butterfly in Agata de Vida and that's the record my grandmother bought me. That's uh, crazy. How old were you when you started going down to like Market Street? Well, I went with her a couple times, and it was, I think it was, I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. You know, go down for the day. Because I had like, I think that tw at 12 years old, I think I had that big cathartic moment, and somebody took us to Wax Tracks in Denver, and that just blew our fucking minds. Well, tell me about, wa tell it's me about this, Wax Tracks. I want to know about that. It's this legendary record store. There's one in Chicago, Wax Tracks Records. Ministry is tied to them. But I remember going to Wax Tracks because my babysitters would talk about it when we were younger and how it was the coolest place to buy records. And a lot of the early rock and roll I heard was from my babysitters who would bring their records over and play them while they were babysitting us. And that was totally rad. I mean, that really was. It was cool because I heard ACDC and Led Zeppelin and the Kinks and some of the Beatles stuff that my parents weren't into that was more psychedelic, the Rolling Stones that they didn't like. My dad liked Neil Young and CCR and uh, Bob Dylan because they were great songwriters who didn't sing very well but made beautiful music. At 12, when Van Halen 1 came out is when it changed my world. It was 78. Changed my world. That's when I bought I bought that at Wax Tracks. We started making the Van Halen logos on Peachies. And then it was always listening to that. It was listening to Zeppelin. I ended up getting in through the outdoor in like 79, I think, when that came out. Um, but in that time period, I got Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2 right away, 
And there were a bunch of other records that I bought from that time period, and I'd have to go back and um, think about it. But, oh, my God. And just being blown away by Wax Tracks and the way it was sorted out. You had the punk rags and the little rock and roll rags. Trouser Press in the 80s was a huge one that I would learn from. And I ended up... uh, getting rid of all those magazines in the 90s and I'm killing myself kicking myself for it what a chump but but yeah like we you know we'd learned about like the punk rock that we liked especially in the 80s and even some of the like the budgie and like the thin lizzie you could find and you could get the EPs the british EPs which we definitely have to talk about how it was so different than the vinyl here and how we never caught on to the EP the way the British did. Yeah, we talked about it a little on our second episode about the Beatles with the Magical Mystery Tour and all that, but go ahead. But, like, I mean, the Jam did that. Like, I mean, that's where I heard about the Jam, the Clash, the Sex Pistols at that point. U2's Boy. I've still got my uh, European import pressing of U2's Boy. My German pressing of Adam and the Ants. Dirk wears white socks. I have my Elvis Costello British, uh, what is it, Armed Forces, the fold-out one that doesn't have what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding on it because it's the British version. And... I ended up getting all these crazy, like, Japanese imports of The Cure in the 80s, which were real big because they had cooler artwork and they were recorded differently or pressed differently. Um, but, yeah, we did oh – God, that's and, – and Wax Tracks was that record store that wow. provided all those cool imports. There, were, there have always been, and, and even now, a lot of them, the independent stores, continue to survive because of the service that they provide there. But back then, it wasn't. There weren't as many of them, and you had to find them. Now, when you wax tracks came around, and you had them in Denver, uh, we had all different kind of stuff in Philadelphia. But there was a lot more chains. You know, we had uh, Jerry's Records was a small chain. That's where I bought that Abbey Road. Um, whenever Mom would go to the Bucks County Mall, I would zig off into Jerry's Records and you know whatever whatever I was looking for and see if they had it there. We didn't have Tower in Philly until later. Uh, we had a uh, wall-to-wall sound, and they had stereos, including eight-track players at one point, and they had uh, all kinds of albums. There was Listening Booth, and then later there was Peaches Records. You've heard of them. Uh, they moved in uh, up in the Northeast. You know, and I would go and I'd shop in the different stores and see what i find here, see what you find there. But my go-tos for a long time, especially when I was a kid living at home, were Jerry's Records in Chamonix or, or Bucks County Mall. Or Hatboro Music, right on right on uh, Main Street, right on York Road in uh, Hatboro. Uh, Joe and Arlene. Joe was the mayor of Hatboro, and he ran Hatboro Music. And if he didn't have it, he'd get it on Tuesday when he was heading down to Universal Distribution. Yeah, and, and then it changed over the years. Record buying became, you know, I got once I got into the the, the radio business and in the, the music business, uh, I didn't buy as many records, but I still bought stuff all the time. And it, it's changed, and God knows we could talk about that for a whole episode. You mentioned something. About the uh, the rags being in the rack at the end of the, at the end cap with the the record stores, one of the things, and it was different when you were growing up versus when I was growing up. How did how did you look for music? How did you? Uh, this is before the way before the internet. For anybody who's listening on the internet, yeah, um, um, you mentioned you mentioned trouser press. Um, that was the eighties alternative. And before that, we had uh, Cream, uh, Rolling Stone, of course, and and you would you would win. Uh, spin came in later, 
because uh, Guccione made all the money off of uh, Hustler, and then he Juniors did a spin. It was a spin off of Hustler. It was, it was good. It was good while it lasted, especially in the first beginning few years. But you had your you know your your main magazines. You had like guitar magazines and things like that. You people would subscribe to them because you could learn a lot about what your uh, favorites were up to and what they were doing. And you'd wait for Rolling Stone to show up in the mail. You really would, and it would seem kind of funny because of the way everything has changed. And even they are on the internet. Almost all their work is done on the internet. You know. A lot of people had older siblings. Um, I was the oldest in my fa- my family, so I didn't have the chance to learn rec- about records from the '60s from uh, my brother or my sister, older brother or sister. Um, somehow, though, maybe it was the time, but my my taste developed very quickly to the point where Wheels of Fire and Disraeli Gears were way more important than. Um, all the other stuff that was coming out, right? These records had already been out by the time I was getting in to listen to albums. And it was like a kid being told that the circus isn't coming to town when I when I found out that after getting all psyched about Cream that they had already broken up. So it's, that's a whole other story. I want to talk about that one time here on the podcast. Thanks for listening to The Imbalance, History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray. I am Marcus. We're talking about vinyl, buying vinyl, 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 vinyl. That type of medium cassettes, all you that. Brought up something when we sat down. You brought up something when we sat down about uh, the 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 deals from Columbia House. Oh yeah. Did you ever do that? Oh yeah, I got suckered by Columbia House. Did you get? I totally did. And then I figured out in the '90s when they had CDs how to how to beat them. It took CDs because on vinyls I got suckered all the time. And to the point where I just stopped doing it because I was like, man, I just got to buy these and get them to stop bothering me. Then I would end the service. But, yeah, CDs is when I figured it out and figured out how to get the ones you want and how to get them to send you the ones you want as choices. And that was hard, but once we did it, it was easy to fulfill. I re- I love those services. If you, w- if you bested them, you did well. Yeah. But if they bested you, you paid through the nose. You were oh, paying yeah. 25 bucks an album. Yeah, so did you get suckered? Um, almost everything that I ended up having to buy from Columbia House was something that I was glad I ended up getting, or the album of the month was something that I wanted. Um, uh, but I got most of it, that what I wanted, and returned almost everything. So I, I, I don't want to say I got suckered, but, you know, I probably paid for it in the end. But that was one of those things, and uh, when I worked in the record business for a little while, I saw those things were still going on, and I saw what they what their role was in the bigger picture for uh, for the record company. So, But uh, now um, people do still go and buy records, um, and we were talking about that. We want you to reach out to us and be interactive, uh, and we, have our fir- we actually had our first email after we posted uh, episode number one, and... Um, and it says, you want me to read it? Yeah. Dude, All right. And I, it's, oh, by the way, if you want to send an email, it's imbalancehistory at gmail.com. So it says, uh, hey, Ray, just listen to the podcast. I'm a history guy, too. Maybe you can open the box that has Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, and Buddy Guy in it. That box will be a blast to open. Holy cow. Ugh. I mean, seriously, the blues, and you're not you're talking about Chicago blues, you're talking about Mississippi Delta blues, I mean, you have big city blues, 
Holy cow, that's a big We'll be digging in pretty deep into the blues at some point. Uh, he says, my personal opinion is that Chuck Berry is the real king of rock and roll just based on the fact that everyone steals his stuff or covers it. Uh, and I think we've already been talking about doing that, but that's a great suggestion. Anyway, I'll be tuning in. Uh, continue to rock on. Uh, one thing I would like to tell you is that ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be on the radio playing jamming tunes. Let's just say my parents were less enthused than I was. I do enjoy those deep tracks that never get airtime. Maybe that's another box to open. He's got a lot of boxes, Eric. says, uh, thanks for doing what you do. I've been listening to you guys, and I think he means both of us because I know he, know he listens to you too, uh, for a long time, and I've always appreciated your nighttime show and nothing like catching a buzz and listening to good music. And that's Eric uh, Mazur. Uh, emailed us at imbalanced history at gmail.com and you can too there was something i wanted to uh touch on on what uh eric said which is fantastic uh as far as the king of rock and roll i think it would be fun to figure out who everybody thinks or in their opinion who is the king or the queen of rock and roll because there's some women when we touch back that are around the time of uh Chuck Berry that have made a huge impact in the rock and roll game. You also have Ike Turner, who was a big player, even though he's kind of a, a monster as far as a lot of people view him. But Oh, and as far as radio, uh, Eric, I'm 52, and my mom still hates the fact that I do radio. And she'll never get over the fact that that's what you I ended up doing. You want a quick and I love it. There? Yeah. All right. Um, my, when I, uh, I got married young. And I didn't want to give up on radio. So I was doing a lot of community, community radio. I did a lot of college radio. And um, my dad was always on wondering when I was going to, you know, give it up, I guess you'd say. Like, you know, move on. And um, I guess it was after I started working at MMR one day, he says, you know, I always tell you to give up on radio. Don't. I said, why? <laughs> he, has, he had a Coob license plate, K-O-O-B. Two girls pulled up next to him. were looking to see who's in the truck, giving him the eye. And he went. Oh, he got the, the the green light went on. However, <laughs> however, he also uh, he still was always cautious about it, you know. Hey, you know, I want, I mentioned Facebook because we got a couple nice recommendations from friends of the page. A lot of people, uh, it's been really cool seeing dozens of people uh, come into our Facebook page, which is Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And uh, please, when if you go there, uh, if your friends go there, make sure they know to make sure they also check out the podcast uh, every time we post up a new episode. Scott Poirier says, definitely worth a listen. Great host with an interesting insight. Thanks, Scott. He's a great guy. Good guy to have a beer with. Uh, Tom Collins, you mentioned Tom earlier, who was uh, taking a lot of great photos and has given us some photos to use for uh, our podcast. Uh, says, Ray and Marcus bleed rock and roll between them. Is a wealth of music experience and knowledge. You won't find cooler people with an even cooler attitude. Rock on. So that's pretty good. So we got, but we got a lot of other people. Uh, I'm looking at some of the people who are checking in on the Facebook page, and we want to thank them too. Definitely want to thank uh, John Blystone, Mike Boyle, Gil Edwards, Kevin Law. Gil. Gil. Gil knows I've been thinking about a podcast for a while. Yep. And Kevin Law, who did our logo, which you will see on Google Play and iTunes, and we're gonna. Is it on the Facebook page yet? Have uh, no, we put it up? Uh, we'll no, put it up. Put it up there because he did a great turn for us. That's uh, Kevin Law from uh, PhillyRockRadio.com. Great guy and uh, Buddy Lesage, uh, the old philosopher. Uh, my buddy Metal Mike, 
uh, my producer back in the Rockers days, and the legendary Doc Magoo. We want to thank you all for being part of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, moving forward, we want to talk about formats. Yes. Right? I want to talk I about too. I want to... Okay, going back to the earliest days, like uh, the, the, the gramophone, I guess, yeah. you know, they, they had cylinders, yes. and they were made of different things. Some of them were made out of metallic substance, uh, uh, the... the yeah, With ceramic, ceramic ones, I think, and, and paper. And the predecessors, the vinyl. So, yeah. But these things would all wear out pretty quickly because it was a heavy needle and it had to be hand-cranked. They hadn't quite worked out the Victrola yet. Well, then you got 78s, which came along. Those Once they the developed... Those were 78s, the first of all the uh, vinyl pieces? I've, I've never seen anything before the 78 and that was when they had developed the the spring mechanism that they needed to make the Victrola work and for the um, for the, for the platter to turn at a at an even speed and that was 78s were around a little bit when I was a kid but mostly they had disappeared by that yeah i have some of my uh grandpa's 78s and then i actually was just handed some by somebody i do some work with tom halbert on the american cancer society bikeathon committee who found some of his aunts and he's like i figured you might want them and i'm like yeah i definitely want to check out the 78s because my mom had like fabian and like we have bill haley in the comments who's from this area see you later alligator um rock around the clock i have uh i can't remember the third one i have from bill haley i think we have one or two i have jailhouse rock i have one one other 78 from Elvis, and I'll have to find those and dig those up, but they are somewhere. Uh, a couple of them cracked because they got so old and brittle, which sucks. Well, they were very thick. Yes, that was the thing I noticed. Thick. And the vinyl was nowhere near as what was it was as far as flexibility yeah. when I, when we were kids or even when in the into the 80s. Yep, and it just shows how far the technology's gotten as far as uh, vinyl goes. Now, from 78s, did they jump into 33s or did they go to 45s? Uh, for the 45 became the prevalent the, yeah, the radio single it all went hand in hand um, and that's what some people f- seem to have forgotten is the how how hand in glove it was between the 45 and the hit single which is what everybody wanted because in those days you had the the it was still like the billboard charts you know but they were the, there was other charts variety and everybody so you wanted to get on those sales charts and to do that the best way was to charge them at that point it was probably like 50 60 cents for a 45 but then i mean when did the album become actually legitimate i've seen the buddy holly story a few times and i've definitely done a lot of research into buddy holly and i can't wait to do an episode about buddy holly as well on this podcast but people like him took a lot of pride in creating an album full of great music that people wanted to listen to an album full of radio hits he produced his own music he wanted that album to be good from the get-go and that was in the 50s so before that when the lp was first and i don't have the dates here in front of me i'm not sure didn't really dig in that deep on it on the history of part of the lp we could do that sometime it'd be fun but the artists um they were making hits, uh, the, the swing era. Um, Sinatra is a great example of who I'm talking of or thinking of. They started making albums, and they made it. Some of them made it the stylistically similar to what you're talking about, what Buddy Holly did, and which later became the norm. Um, so LPs as a format, that's what we should talk about sometime. Uh, the development of 33 and a third. Were real tapes a part of that whole thing? Because I have a bunch of real tapes 
like Connie Francis, and I gave Pierre Robert a Frank Sinatra one because he loves Frank, and I have a bunch of other ones. I even I think I have Joy Division still on freaking reel. I have Three Dog Night on reel to reel. Um, Some people would do that. They it was a it was a high it was a hi fi thing like because hi fi music setups were so different back then. Some people would get a really nice reel to reel player, and they'd either I don't think they were selling reel-to-reel tapes. You, you, I never saw a commercially sold reel-to-reel tape, but I'm sure they exist. I mean, you, maybe you have one you could show me. But, okay, we'll have to get a picture of it, too. But um, I don't remember seeing that, but I knew a lot of people had them, and they would record their albums onto there, and, and then they could just play them back without playing the album, without wearing out the album, that kind of thing. Well, that, that was also the early mixtape, too. Think about that. You could do songs from albums that you wanted to hear if you had a party tape. Yep, so that might have been the early mixtape as well. And then in the 80s, we started hearing about this digital format, and, and that's where you probably did a lot of your record buying with CDs, right? It was, but I actually started late on CDs because I still loved the sound of vinyl, the feel of vinyl, the smell of vinyl. All of that made such a difference. because you had hippie parents. No, actually, I had totally non-hippie parents. I had hippie babysitters and hippie friends. My parents were totally... Like Neil Young and Bob Dylan. He's a hippie. Yeah, that's true. He's kind of a closeted hippie, I guess you could say. But yeah, I still like vinyl. And I was late to the game on CDs. And I think it was the late 80s, like 89 or 90, when I bought my first CD. And it was Cheap Trick at Budokan. What was yours? My first CD... Was a comp. It was a. It was a. It was a. It was a, I, it was a stamped. Um, yeah, but it's also special to me because it was given to me by the artist. I was working with Debella on the morning zoo, and then I think by then I was doing promotions. And uh, Steve Hackett and Steve Howe came in to be live into the studio with their new project GTR, and that was actually the first CD I took it home that day, and I went. Well, now I got to get a CD player, and that's where how I got into it. And I guess I got about twenty five, twenty six hundred on the wall. I have a wall at home. I didn't take any pictures of that. I'll have to send you some pictures of that. But um, and vinyl, um, I got eleven, twelve hundred on the wall, and I got another probably three hundred, four hundred in boxes plus forty fives. And I I can't even tell you how many I've put together there. I do remember how excited I was that I got uh, Brothers in Arms from Dire Straits shortly after that, Did you get because. That? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, through you know through Warner, sure, George Stone, but it, because it was the first thing that was completely digital, it was recorded digitally, mastered, and then of course released digitally. So if you're younger and you're listening to this podcast, the imbalanced history of rock and roll, you might be thinking, so what's the big deal? It was recorded and released digitally. Well, that was a big deal uh, until the uh, mid to late 80s. Even after that, it was a long time before it became pretty much the way things got done. So, Do you remember how people were freaking out, including probably ourselves, about digital? Oh, they're going to make the sound bad. It's not going to sound as good. Oh, they're going to homogenize it. Oh, they're going to do this. Oh, they're going to do that. And they may have done some of that, but they've done some pretty goddamn incredible things with it as well. We could get deep into this um, uh, because of the re-release part, initial part of CD becoming the thing. Um, There were some botched jobs, and we could talk about that. A lot of the reissuing onto CD wasn't done right initially, and uh, it took a while for them to get it right. So I'm cool with CDs, but I'll tell you, there's nothing like the warmth 
of a Jimi Hendrix record when you drop the needle. There's just nothing like it. So I, I fell in love with the sound of the needle scraping across the grooves a long time ago. Like I said, my mom had a bunch of records. We had a bunch of records in the house as kids. I listened to 45s. I could put a stack of them on. Back then we stacked them, you know. Put them on and put a stack on and just play them all day. Put different ones in there. It was like I was learning to be a DJ a little bit. Oh, I think me the same. I listened to vinyl all the time as a kid. Did you ever buy 45s? Absolutely, I bought 45s. Like Hot Chocolate, um, You Sexy Thing, La Freak, um, Chic. I have. I actually have to pull those out and take some pictures of those and sh- and show you guys some of my old 45s, like that Toto Hold the Line, which I remember getting. Jimi Hendrix somewhere. I have a bunch of old stuff, too. Um, I think I have Foxy Lady, and uh, I can't remember what the B-side was of that. Purple Haze, maybe. It was a repress. It wasn't the original 45, but it was two great Jimi Hendrix songs on a 45 that I got, and I think it was on reprise. I'm just looking at the yellow. I'm just seeing the yellow of the 45 with the R and the dots, I think. It's crazy to think that Frank Sinatra and Jimi Hendrix were on the same label. And it's crazy to think that talking about that, I can see the reprise record label right there on the 45 in my head right now. Totally. Write it down. That's a whole other episode. What what record labels on, on albums look like. I'm just realizing that all the other stuff that we wanted to talk about, really, we should just set aside some of these things and do a, a whole episode just on, you know, I don't know, the passing, uh, of the, the passing of the record and buying in Musical Torch. Um, we, we, we've been talking for a while and now people understand where we're coming from as far as, um, our, our love of vinyl, how we came to our love of, I'm, I'm crazy about physical media. I only have a couple eight tracks. They're basically, um, there for effect. They're stuck in the wall. So you can see, look, I have an eight track. I know people who've got, you know, five, 10 times what I have still a lot of people have shed a lot of their vinyl and, but some people still got it all, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't have nearly that much vinyl. I have maybe 1,000, 1,200 pieces of vinyl. I have about 8,000 8, CDs from my years in radio. Wow. Like, so you still have all that in here in the house? Yeah. I have them all packed up in a way. I never got into the 8-tracks. My parents hated 8-tracks because they were bulky and cluttery. Cassettes I liked because of the mixtapes. I could either do CDs or LPs with mixtapes. My friends, I did all the mixtapes for all our our events in high school and junior high and college and all that. Um, That was always my thing because I had all the vinyl and... That was my hobby. I collected that stuff. And uh, so I did that. And so I'm trying to get my friends to take pictures of the uh, mixtapes that well, I, I used I to took make. a bunch of pictures before yeah. we sat down to do this episode. And I was going through, I have those, um, the wood veneer boxes that had the three drawers of cassettes oh, in it, yeah. right? I got two of those. So I got one out of where it was stored and I pulled it out. And I just didn't know which one I had. And when you see the pictures, <laughs> and we'll have them up on um, uh, on the Facebook page, and we'll also have them up um, probably on the, the main website too. We want you to—I want you to see some of these cassettes that I've been that have been sitting in a box for 15, 20 years. Just—it's amazing to me. It's like, oh wow, that's where that is. That kind of fun stuff. I just remembered the first two cassettes that I was gifted. Oh yeah, where were they? Bay City Rollers and Paper Lace. The night Chicago died. And I still have them somewhere in this house. I know that for a fact. I know that I have them for a fact. And the Bay City Rollers was a blue cassette in a blue case. Next time we talk about records and vinyl, we'll have to go through and talk about all the 
the weird specialty stuff. We have colored vinyl and things like that. Because I'm, I'm about to clean up in the basement. Not getting rid of any of it, yeah. believe me. No. I'm going to clean up in the basement, and when we do, I'll, I'll take an inventory of my crap. We have to. I mean, some of the specialty CDs that we have as well, some of the collector CDs that we have, some of the packages. Like, remember when Allison Chains released the Jar of Flies with the CD with the flies in it? And I think you have one of those. Yes, I do. And the uh, Bad Motor Finger double CD with the uh, cover of Girl You Want and the Into the Void and yes. all that that was only for radio and label people. You know, I kept the bag of dirt for a long time unopened. I went and got another copy of Alice in Chains Dirt, but I kept the dirt in the bag with the CD wow. for a long time. And one day I looked at it and I was like, wow, it's looking pretty moldy. Maybe I should just chuck it. And I, well, it was it was time. I'm Ray Coop. I'm, I love doing this with you, Marcus. Uh, we, we we just, we're, I think now that we're a few episodes into it, we're starting to realize this really might have not been as bad of an idea as we thought it was at first, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, I'm looking forward to what's ahead in, in the, uh, history, the imbalanced history of rock and roll. This is fun. It's a blast talking about vinyl these commonalities i don't know man i think i think uh, we've kind of laid out how we've come to be collectors how we've come to the di how, how we've kind of glanced a little bit all the different formats through the years i think we could dig in deeper into the history of formats and media and we didn't really talk much about digital and that's a whole nother thing we we, we need to talk about and explore because that's what we want to do here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll thank you again for listening don't forget if you like what you're hearing make sure you tell a friend and tell them to subscribe wherever they find podcasts you can find us and don't forget to go to imbalancedhistory.com as well as the imbalanced history of rock and roll on facebook you can find the page, like it. We post articles about Rock and Roll Daily, and hopefully we will generate more and more discussion as we continue to grow and you grow with us. Thank you again for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.